Are you getting tired of the Thunderbolt single cable promise? I know I am. <laughs> I thought you were going to do an ad. Well then, friends, I have something special for you. It's the Super Thunderbolt Cable Promise. <laughs> Pets overnight in a box dot com. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I just bought a CalDigit TS4 a couple of months ago. You know, it's plug- plugged into my MacBook with Thunderbolt 4 as well. So, you know, the signal chain is, is extremely simple so far as Thunderbolt goes. This thing is frustrating, very frustrating, because when I wake it from sleep, my MacBook, I mean, nine times out of 10, I have to unplug and replug every USB device from the dock. So I go over to the CalDigit website and I think, okay, cool. There must be a firmware update for this thing. Turns out a Thunderbolt 4 dock marketed primarily at Mac users, they don't have a Mac-based firmware update utility. It's only for Windows. No. No. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's embarrassing. Seriously, it is embarrassing. I totally agree. So luckily for me, I have a ThinkPad T4 ATS, which has Thunderbolt 3 on it. So I wipe the thing. I put Windows on it specifically just to update the firmware on this dock. I get all the way through the rigmarole of installing Windows, which is still a pain in the ass. And then I go to update the firmware on the dock and it says, Thunderbolt firmware mismatch. Thunderbolt 3, isn't it? Oh, oh, no. Right. So you can't update a Thunderbolt 4 device from a Thunderbolt 3 device? Oh, no, you can. So I got in touch with CalDigit support, which took me about a week and a half to get through the hoops I needed to get, get through via email. They then informed me that my firmware on the T480S was out of date and I needed to use the firmware <laughs> update tool to update the ThinkPad's <laughs> firmware. God. <laughs> And for some reason, it wasn't working from Windows, so I wiped Windows, and I used FWAPD on Linux to update the firmware on this freaking laptop. You could have just used a live image, Alex. Amazing. I love oh, this. Brent, I could have, couldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> I mm. love this so much. I, you must have been like in a fugue state. You were just trying to get this done. Uh, you know, I was losing the will to live slowly but surely. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, eventually I got the firmware update done. It took way longer than it should have done. We're talking like two weeks to finally get everything, all the moon and the stars aligned correctly to make this thing happen. I go to open my laptop today to record this show. And guess what? Uh Uh-oh. The USB devices didn't show up. So it was all for nothing. (laughs) (sighs) This does confirm my personal bias in that I think CalDigit makes the worst Thunderbolt docs. And I know know some podcasters out there, big talk, uh, CalDigit, but... I've never liked them, and I've owned one CalDigit, and I never went back, and I've owned two OWC Thunderbolt docks and never had problems, but I don't know if they've been Thunderbolt 4 docks. They might have been Thunderbolt 3 docks, but I also think the OWC docks look better. I think they're better looking docks, too. So there's that. I'll put a link in the show notes. I swear by my TS3+, Plus, that thing has been extremely solid for me. Uh, I had a bad experience with the TS3+, Pro, the smaller one from CalDigit, where it caused a, a broadcast storm of packets on my network and literally took out my entire LAN until I unplugged the thing whenever the Mac went to sleep. So, you know, out of the three CalDigit products I've bought, only one has functioned as advertised so far. Mm. It's not going so well. <laughs> Alex, can I ask why you thought you should upgrade to the Thunderbolt 4? Well, I need, you know, in my house, I have a a home set up like in in my family room where I sort of hang out and record podcasts and stuff. And then I have a home office downstairs. And 
work provided me with a MacBook. And so I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I just had a Thunderbolt cable in each place and I can just plug in whatever computer I have and I'm good to go. This TS4 has 2.5 gig Ethernet as well. So I thought, hmm, that's a tasty little upgrade. I, I also love the idea. I've had some success, but again, it's all Thunderbolt 3. I know this sounds weird, but I really love Thunderbolt and I wish it was more widely used. There's definitely some uptake in the PC side of things, but it's still predominantly a Mac tech and it's so much better than USB. It's just too expensive. When it works, it's fantastic. But, you know, you look at how USB is with USB hubs and switches and all that kind of stuff. I need all that for Thunderbolt too, however technically difficult it is to implement. And I, I need it to not cost three or four hundred dollars every time I want to buy a peripheral. It reminds me of Firewire back in the day. It is very much yeah. same, same like uh, I think they're cousins, same kind of lineage. Alex, I know that you've been continuing to de-Google like I have. This this trend has not slowed for me. I am so far Google Photos free once again after getting sucked back in a year ago when they got me some some free storage, and I have. Yet to delete the photos, but I have a full side, like secondary system that's working all the way. It's backing up. I'm trying Storage J for the first time. I don't know if you've played around with those guys, but it's it's pretty cheap, decentralized S3 compatible storage. And I'm using that with Duplicati to do backups. Like I'm making moves, Alex. The de-Googling thing is continuing even while on the road. Next step is I'm going to try out... Um, Graphene OS on my Pixel 3. Not there yet, because I had to find the Pixel 3 first. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to hear. I've been looking at uh, Photosync on iOS this week, which also supports uh, S3 storage backends. I'm not quite ready to talk about it in the show yet. Like it's, I'm still figuring it out and making it work as I want to. You figure it out. <laughs> Thanks, Figure Brent. it out. We didn't, we didn't welcome Brent to the show yet. Hello, Brent. How are you? Oh, hi. I'm doing well. I'm being reminded that almost exactly a year ago, we were doing the same on the road trip. I was sat in this very seat uh, doing a self-hosted with you both. And we were talking about de-Googling. We talked about maps we at were. that time. So it's kind of our yearly, uh, yearly yeah, review. And the maps thing is stuck. You know, since then, I am still Google Maps free. Wow. However, I realized kind of recently that I do use Waze on occasion. And uh, that is actually a Google product. So there's they that. Got you there. But I don't use it actually for nav, you know, but I just use it for the police stuff. Apple Maps is surprisingly good these days. Yeah, I, I've had I've had a I'd say I've had a 90 percent success rate. That's impressive. I mean, I can't say that I've given up Google Maps yet. I want to. But uh, maybe one day. So anyway, talking about the de-Googling side of things, I was focusing on audio for the last couple of weeks, really. And I have for some reason I've got about feels like a nearly a dozen Google Home Minis dotted around this house that I got for like $5 offers or free or I've just acquired an unbelievable number of these things over the years. Also a couple of Chromecast audios. And so I've been using these things in home audio groups or speaker groups, I think is the Google phrase, uh, to create a whole home audio solution. I haven't been 100% happy with it. But it's honestly just been good enough. And, you know, sometimes when you just want some tunes when you're in the shower or something like that, uh, or just, you know, tidy in the house, you just want the same song playing everywhere. However, as you all know, Google are not currently flavor of the month with me or, or Chris. And uh, the goal uh, was, still is, whole home audio in sync through multiple different 
amplifiers and different speaker types and all, and all that kind of stuff. And so in my family room, I have a, a discrete amplifier plugged into a pair of uh, passive floor standing loudspeakers. Downstairs, I have another one in the uh, like kitchen area. Again, it's just a normal amplifier, no smarts to it, no network connectivity, nothing like that. And I've, I've really struggled to integrate these into Home Assistant and the smart home in general. And so I went on a bit of a mission this week to try and solve that. And a few pieces of the puzzle had to fall into place to make this happen. So first of all, I thought I would tackle the audio playback side of these things because there's no you know, network jack on these, on these amplifiers. So I needed to use some other hardware to act as a Spotify Connect endpoint and a AirPlay endpoint for when I'm using PlexAmp. Uh, and I came across a bunch of feedback from a couple of years ago when I was talking about doing a similar thing whilst I was drumming and allowing people in the house to listen to the backing track that I'm playing along to through the speakers throughout the rest of the house. I never actually acted on much of that feedback back then. I just sort of stuck with the Google Home thing and the Chromecast audios. And it, like I say, it, it sort of worked good enough, but we are where we are today. And so I tried a few things this week. One of them that's still on my to-do list that's very high up there, I just haven't got to it yet, is called Snapcast. So if you're about to write an email telling me to check out Snapcast, don't worry, I'll get to it next time. The first thing I tried was something called PyCore Player. And the reason that I, I wanted to use this was because I've got a couple of Raspberry Pis sat in the drawer behind me. Well, actually, they're deployed now, so they're out of the drawer and actually in use, which is amazing. But PyCore Player primarily for me was a vehicle to run the Spotify Connect software, the SharePlay, uh, the SharePort software for AirPlay 1 compatibility and something called Logitech Media Server. I don't know if you remember this. It's a really old piece of software. It's about 10 years old or so. Does it do basic DLNA? Is that what it does? Well, I think back in the day, Logitech made a piece of hardware called the squeeze box. Do you remember that? Oh, I do remember the squeeze box. Yes. And it was their kind of vision of what the the smart home, smart media world should look like. But they, they were just 10 years too early with it. And I'm I'm not exaggerating with that. No, everybody, you're, like the whole idea was rip your CDs and get them on this thing, right? They were just before Spotify. It was before music in the cloud, really. Yeah, and you had this kind of uh, piece of hardware that sat on a coffee table or it was like a small like little touchscreen, almost like a tablet, but before touchscreens were actually any good. This media server kind of sat behind this thing and indexed your files and connected to uh, internet radio was the was the sales pitch back then of course now internet radio is spotify and pandora and all that other stuff <laughs> you know it kind of created its own cloud in a way which is sort of what you needed back then i suppose the, the idea thinking about it now is kind of a fun one and if you've got one out there you could sell it for a decent price depending on how good the condition is what yeah what yeah, like a, a decent decent condition one's going for 400 bucks online right now. So. <laughs> because it's like a museum piece, right? I don't know. Because <laughs> people love this stuff. I don't know what it is. But, you know, the idea is pretty great. So this thing can run the indexing back end or what, Alex? The receiver? Well, so there's, there's two things at play here. There's Logitech Media Server, which is the has, has been abandoned by Logitech now, as I understand it. 
and taken up by the open source community and kind of improved over the years. Fundamentally, though, it's still the same old piece of crap underneath. And uh, I don't wish to be rude about it, but I guess I kind of have been already. It, it's just not it's just not a modern application. But Alex, it has an iPod aux in. Back when they had <laughs> audio connections, right? Yeah, back when they had audio ports. <laughs> <laughs> so I was using PyCore Player to actually host LMS. And PyCore Player is pretty cool, actually. It, it boots fast and it runs entirely in RAM. So it doesn't write to your Raspberry Pi's SD card unless you want to save any settings. And it can stream from all sorts of services like Spotify and Deezer and Tidal and BBC Music and a bunch of other stuff. And it was a pretty simple setup, you know, typical Pi stuff. You just flash an image to the SD card and five minutes later, you've got a, a working system. Trouble is... The interface, once this thing loads up, looks like it was written in about 1984. And it's uh, got lots of little tweaks and buttons. I'm sure the developers of that interface know exactly where they are and which dials to tweak. And it's just, it's not an interface written by humans for humans. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it makes it, not only is it a challenge for you, but forget spousal approval if you ever wanted. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> well, my goal for spousal approval was simply to have it appear as a Spotify Connect endpoint. You know, when you list the devices and it says, you know, here are the speakers that support like like a Chromecast list or an Air playlist or something like that. My goal was for her not to actually ever interact with this thing. Just except from like on her phone, maybe it's one of the available output options. Correct. But I've got to interact with it and, and try and figure this thing out. Unfortunately, PyCore Player, I don't think is quite it. I, I couldn't get the speaker groups set up as I wanted or configured correctly, whether that was my fault or the interface or the hardware I've got. I don't know. It it just took up an entire evening of my time. And I, I just got, by the end of the evening, I got quite frustrated and, and gave up, frankly. Were you able to get it working at all? Like, well, did, did you get any piece of it working? It's still running behind me. It's booted on the Raspberry Pi that's on my desk behind me, and it's still sat there providing an uh, AirPlay endpoint. But what I ended up doing was actually pulling out my Raspberry Pi 2 out of the drawer, probably the oldest Raspberry Pi I have. Oh, my. And I threw another project on it called RPi Audio Receiver. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. And this is a simple, lightweight audio receiver with Bluetooth, AirPlay 1, and Spotify Connect built in. I couldn't honestly believe that within one minute of it booting and configuring a couple of things uh, from the command line, there's a script you you install on Raspberry Pi OS. It just worked. Mm, that's nice. After my whole evening futzing around with PyCore Player, this thing just worked within a minute. I was like, is that it? Oh, great. Cool. Isn't that what you'd expect too, really? Because... All of these things are just using like broadcast DNS and stuff to just discover each other. So you just need to get it on the network, I would imagine, right? You must have had to give it, what, DHCP? Or there must have been some sort of network config info, and then it just boots up? Yeah, well, so it's a Raspberry Pi 2, so I just installed Raspberry Pi OS on it. And then you, you clone the Git repo, and you run the install script, which sets up Bluetooth, it sets up SharePort Sync, and RAS Spotify, which is an open source Spotify client for Raspberry Pi. And then once you've configured it, via the script it asks you for a couple of credentials uh you're good to go wow 
I mean, I guess setting up Raspberry Pi is not too bad. Raspberry Pi OS doesn't take too long, but it is a step. What took the longest was the Raspberry Pi 2 installing all the packages. I mean... Oh, I slow, I bet. <laughs> that took about 45 minutes to run the script, I think. Uh, I couldn't believe how slow it was. I think I was texting Brent at the time saying... Oh, yeah. This thing is just one step away from junk. But Yeah, it's old. But, I mean, it doesn't need to be that fast. It does the trick for playing audio. And, and one thing I can't say was the case for PyCore Player. Sadly, one of the biggest issues with it beyond the interface was that audio just kept skipping. Oh. And that's just no good uh, these days. You'd, you'd think, And that was running on a Pi 4 as well. So for anybody that thinks it was the Pi 2 that couldn't cope with it, the Pi 4 couldn't cope with streaming a Spotify stream <laughs> through PyCore Player. Okay. So... That's well, no good. I, yeah, I have a question, Alex. Why did you decide to like downgrade to a Pi 2 and not just switch over to the Pi 4? I was trying to do too, too many things at once, I think. <laughs> I, just, I happened to have that one in the drawer. and I, was, I, I, I knew that I wanted to put, deploy two of these things to both amplifiers in the house. And uh, I only had one Raspberry Pi 4 and one Raspberry Pi 2. So I knew that the, the Pi 2 was going to have to be used at some point. I kind of figured out the Pi Core player wasn't where I wanted to be fairly quickly, but even though I kept at it. And so I, I was Googling for other stuff in the meantime whilst it was uh, doing its thing. Yeah, I've been there. You've, you've already got, you've already burned a pie. It's it's working on another version. I got, I got to put this on a different one. That's why you got to just have so many pies, Alex. Now you understand my problem. I know. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm inducted. So the last piece of the puzzle was figuring out how to control these dumb amplifiers. And for that, I turned to IR blasters. This is a, the technology that I've used for many years with the Logitech Harmony Hub system. But Logitech, again, uh, they're turning into Google, aren't they, with de deprecating products. Uh, they stopped supporting the Harmony Hub, which I still have one, but I, I don't want to deploy a new piece of hardware in the house. For starters, I only have one of them. And, and secondly, I don't want to deploy a piece of hardware that's already end of life. I bought a Broadlink RM4 Mini, and this is an infrared blaster that I can use to program from Home Assistant uh, infrared codes from my remote control to change the inputs on the amplifiers and then couple that with Home Assistant to detect the source changes on the Raspberry Pi media player. <laughs> and it will automatically change the inputs on the amplifier based on what's happening in the real world right now. Uh, it's, it's, it's not perfect, uh, unfortunately. So there's a bug, I think, in the Broadlink integration where I will need to toggle between the three inputs I have on, on the amplifier in a random order in order for it to actually end up on the correct one eventually at the end of it. Like it just doesn't send the right command and I can't figure it out. So I just spam the inputs and eventually it gets where I want it to be. That sounds a bit annoying. It is. And ultimately that's why I hate infrared blasters is because they have no knowledge of what the end result you know, was their blasting successful? Well, they have no idea. Yeah, that does sound a little rickety. A little brittle, I guess. Yeah, the trouble I've got, though, is both of these dumb amplifiers don't have an RS-232 port. They don't have any other way of controlling them besides infrared. So I'm kind of stuck, really, unless I buy two new amplifiers, which sounds like it's going to be expensive. What's your sense of the reliability so far? Uh, when it works, it works. When it doesn't, it doesn't. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Hit and miss. Yeah. Yeah, about 80%, which is it's not, it's not high enough. I bet you there is some sort of some sort of solution out there for this. Somebody out there listening has solved this problem. 
I solve it with HomePods. I, I admit it. I'm a, I'm a filthy iOS ecosystem user, and I just solve it with HomePods. Well, Alex, since you're not satisfied, what's your next step? Well, the trouble is, uh, both of these amplifiers are sort of audiophile grade amplifiers. Like the one in the family room powers those beautiful big floor standing Kef speakers that I've had for forever. And it, I, I am super happy with the sound profile of these things. And I, I, I don't want to replace it. So I don't know. Uh, if you have a better idea, maybe uh, an infrared blaster that's more reliable than the Broadlink that you could recommend me and I could try out, please let me know at selfhosted.show slash contact. Now, Alex, when I was there last, I remember you were fussing with some hard drive issues, which had existed when I was there the time before. We're talking me? about Never. many months ago. So did you ever solve that? Because it wasn't solved when I left. Uh, I'll let you know. I've, I've taken some steps to try and solve it. Um, I tried I tried all sorts of stuff to fix this. So what was happening was I had a hard drive niggle that's been hanging around since April, uh, as you just said. And since then, I've tried new power cables, new data cables, a new HBA card, even a new hard drive, and still just random stuff just keeps disappearing. Like You text me, I think it was um, the other week, saying, I'm sure you had more episodes of Final Space than that. Yeah, it's true. Oh, no. Yeah, some stuff is just vanishing randomly. And and the, tr- the trouble with that is that it screws with all sorts of stuff, like the Plex library. Uh, re-indexes every night just as a uh, something just a, a scheduled job that i have and so when the drive comes back after a reboot or something plex thinks oh goody here's a whole bunch of new content for you <laughs> uh, and it just it screws up so much stuff um it's both the most amazing feature of merger fs and probably the most frustrating in this specific scenario is that it supports drives disappearing like a usb drive disappearing would be no issue for it just silently and it doesn't tell me uh, a failure's happened so i haven't figured out a good way to alert on this uh, particular issue simply because it it just it's so random when it happens anyway I, I took the decision that i got fed up of messing around with cables in the back of hard drive bays I, i'm using the rosewell lsv 4500 4u rack mount server case the version I had did not have the hot swap hard drive cages in it. And so to, to make a change to the hard drives, I had to pull the server out, lift the lid off, reach down inside in the dark with a my phone torch. and Like a caveman. I know, I know. So I finally bit the bullet. I bought three new hard drive cages that take four, three and a half hard drives each, the hot swap bays. Uh, they look amazing. They've got beautiful, sexy blue LEDs on the front, and they they flash when activity's happening like a real server. Mm-hmm. There's, I can only fit 12 hard drives rather than 15, but actually I found the 10 to 12 range is about the sweet spot anyway for my needs, uh, particularly with density going up as it is. And so the, the way I tried to solve it is just by making it easier to do maintenance trying to reduce the number of cables being unplugged and replugged and uh, going to a backplane based solution instead of cables directly into the drives themselves. That does sound like a really good setup, Alex. Even if it doesn't necessarily solve the specific problems, it is going to be a lot easier to maintain, which will probably reduce problems overall. I do hope so. We'll see though. Time will be time will be the tell. Maybe by the next time I visit we'll have this solved. Maybe by the next time you visit, Matter might actually be in existence. Did you see the update from Paulus this week? 
Now hold on, I thought this was I thought this was my gig on the show. I thought I was the matter ha- hype guy, and you were the guy saying matter was never going to happen. We, oh, it doesn't flip. matter, Chris. Oh. <laughs> oh, man, it matters so much, though. I am really hopeful. Um, I know, you know, almost as much as Paulus, the the founder of Home Assistant, he really seems to be like one of their biggest fans out there. He says, uh, he tweets, matter being open source is what gives this standard a chance to be a success. Google, Apple, Home Assistant, and any other controller will all run the same code to control the devices. The device themselves will also run a standard matter SDK supported by the chip vendor. I expect a wave of new controllers because with this multi-admin setup, you can now have multiple controllers for your home. Manufacturers that focus on just devices might add a hub. Home Depot will be back in the game. I expect Sonus to join in too. Maybe Hugh. He's very hyped. He doesn't think it'll be a success from day one, though. I don't know. I just remember that XKCD comic, you know, where there are seven standards and they create a new standard and now there are eight standards. And I just fear that's where we're going to end up. But it does sound too good to be true. Doesn't it matter? That's that's my fear. It does. Every experience I've had in my life in tech tells me this is too good to be true. But then at the same time, we also kind of have this situation that is a little unprecedented in tech. And so maybe a new solution is required here. No one vendor has just totally dominated home automation and the networking protocol and the standards that go with that. Nest didn't do it. Ring didn't do it. Apple hasn't done it with HomeKit. Microsoft doesn't even have anything really except for like the xbox ecosystem and amazon hasn't successfully done it with the echo and uh google hasn't necessarily successfully done it with um also the their home assistant and all that stuff along with the nest it's just kind of like this really kind of mix everybody has a small little chunk you have a bunch of 10 percenters that have 10 percent of the market 10 percent of the market 10 you know and so there's no one vendor who's leading in this space that can declare victor and and everybody must follow it so they kind of need to all come together and just declare a victor because none of them have won and it's been years now it's a very good point and i think maybe that's driven in part at least by the proliferation of of cheap chinese clones of of everything that gets made that's had proper r&d on it so Maybe this is the conclusion of that and a way to try and prevent that and try and keep the Western companies, shall we say, in in the game in the long run. And the thing that Paulus was really excited about is that uh, version 1.0 seems to have uh, hit the uh, project chip GitHub repo. You know, I feel like we don't really need to speculate when is matter going to hit the market. I know with absolute certainty when it's going to hit the market. As soon as I break down and replace everything with Zigbee devices, matter will come out and it'll ship. It's obvious. So you guys just have to wait. Hurry the up, question then. really is, yeah, when's Chris going to get his Zigbee devices? That's really the question <laughs> we should be asking. <laughs> Hurry up. Okay. All right. When I get back from the trip, that'll be one of my projects. <laughs> <laughs> have we mentioned, too, that Brent and I are here in Southern Oregon? We just did our first meetup. So, yeah, we're on the road right now if we sound weird. But, yeah, when I get back, I'm working on that. Yeah, this time next week, I think we'll all be in L.A. together warming up for JPL. Mm-hmm. That's kinda, That's I am getting so exciting. excited. Yeah, I've been watching videos, reading docs, getting like all the JPL knowledge. But the videos you've been watching are like historical. Awesome. Yeah, I know. they are very. The U.S. military needed a very special unit. You know, that kind of stuff. 
Well, I'm sorry to derail your space fun, but I did find a pretty cool project related to ESP Home and Home Assistant this week. We actually mentioned iPods a little earlier in the show. Well, here's another reference to them. Remember that click wheel style navigation on iPods as it used to have back in the day, kids? Of course. Yes. Yeah, there'll be some kids around that don't remember that, which just makes me feel very old. But anyway, take a look at this link that's in the show notes and uh, tell me this isn't the coolest Home Assistant remote you've ever seen. This is better than an iPod Touch because it doesn't even have a housing, so it looks really cool. But it's it's a little bit smaller, too. Um, but it's essentially like a click dial attached to an ESP Home with a display, a little LED display mounted on it. And you can just toggle your way through the various Home Assistant menus. You know, And the nice thing is, is a toggle wheel actually is a pretty good UI when you're doing things like t- turning up brightness or turning up audio up and down. Like the toggle UI works. Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, before touchscreens, it was the way to go. <laughs> have you uh, have you heard that there was some, uh, like at one point, or like there's some mock-up of the iPhone, but with a click wheel? They actually, for a short period of time, were doing two projects at the same time. There was one camp that wanted an entirely new OS that was rebased on Mac OS, and there was one camp that wanted to take the iPod OS and bring it to the iPhone. And so they ran both of them simultaneously um, until, obviously, the one based on OS X went out. Fascinating. I did not know that. You know, a little iPod, an actual legitimate little iPod, might not make a bad little Home Assistant remote if you just wanted a couple of toggle switches on there. I could see that. I was watching some videos the other day on YouTube. People now are taking the old iPod Classics removing the spinning hard drive and putting sd cards in them instead and because the sd cards require you know a tenth of the power of a spinning hard drive the battery life on these things is measured in in months not hours that is incredible that's such a great idea i love that i'm gonna i'm gonna experiment with different tablets and stuff you know use stuff i want to find really cheap ones because i want even more screens i want a home assistant control screen in every room I would say, again, this year, it's been great for me to come to the studio and also into Jupes and have those screens. As someone who doesn't know, you know, all the control voices, uh, the voice commands that I can use here, just having those screens is great. Bring them up. And I was able to eventually figure out how to turn the lights off before I went to bed last night. (laughs) You did. Was it hard? Was it hard to figure it out? Um, I would say the icon set on that particular one, trying to figure out which one was going to control, you know, right. which one was going to represent all the lights. I got right. tons of information about other systems that got me really curious, <laughs> um, but I eventually got there and it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, cause the icons really mean something to me. It's the bus icon, right? The bus icon yeah, is when we control the lights. I never thought that was going to be yeah. the correlation. Yeah. That makes sense. I suppose. And that screen, the tablet that Brent was using. Uh, it defaults to the climate control when you load up the when the screen wakes up because that's what my wife wants access to in the morning when she's like managing power or something like that. She wants to be able to just toggle on or turn up heat. And so that's what it turns on to by default. But you can toggle to the other dashboard pages, but it, then the then the, the tablet on the other side of the door that's in the bathroom, that tablet does default to that bus page with all the buttons and stuff. So go figure, right? So does she use one for one function and then go to the back if she needs to turn the no, lights off? No, I don't think that? so. It's just because it, it turns out, you know, there's like a lot of times there's just different things going on out here that there are in the back. And so you just want two different controls. And I want even more. I'd like one by the door. So when you get in, like I just have one that just has like big buttons for lights. Hit up one big button, just lights on. W- would you like, can you put something like a stream deck 
instead. Oh, yeah. Or you could do like a, you know, just a regular little wireless button. Oh, man. There's all kinds of, you could so do an actual physical button. Yeah. I think for the door, I'd probably do a physical button. Look, even I'm getting excited. <laughs> you know, you can buy the old NVIDIA Shield tablets for like $60 on eBay right now. Oh, those are great tablets. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. That's a good hot tip. I'm going to go look that up before somebody listening buys them all up. <laughs> yeah, but how many ads are going to be on them? Well, no, I don't know. You think on the, uh, the, the, the NVIDIA Shields, not really. I mean, they're running Android, so, you know, that may or may not float your boat, but. I, I wonder if you could flash them with something newer. I would I would imagine it's a well-supported device by the likes of Lineage or that, that, that sort of stuff. Oh, you're right, Alex. Look at this. Oh, also the iPad mini too is 75 bucks. How would that work as a home assistant? screen well you see the thing about the android based stuff is you could use fully kiosk browser and then have it you know use the camera to turn on and off when you're nearby which for you with a limited power situation is probably what you want yep i use that now actually i do that same thing yeah there you go when when you approach the tablets they just auto turn on heck i might have to pick one of these up look at this thing i I know that's what i'm thinking (laughs) that's great i'm great i'm getting one because i'm looking for a new tablet there you go. You see, you're you're, uh, you're going to see me uh, just spend money right here live on the show. You shouldn't watch that, Brent. It's <laughs> it's just not it's not gentlemanly of me. Well, it's meetup season, people. I'm sure you are totally not fed up with us talking about meetups. But Chris and Brent are on the road on the way to LA already. If you'd like to get details of all the meetups that are happening along the way, go to meetup.com/slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Where's your next one going to be, gents? After this airs, Sacramento on um, Friday. Really? So the day this comes out will be, uh, so if you're listening, the day this comes out, I believe it's Sacramento, and uh, we have all the details up there. And um, then after that, it's Southern California, and then shortly, and that's a couple, like a week later, and then after that, there's one more, and that is in Portland. And there was actually an issue where we had accidentally limited the RSVPs for a couple of the meetups. So if that happened to you, if you tried to sign up and it said, sorry, limit reached, that was a mistake. That was that was a meetup.com. You know, I'm getting rid of meetup. This this is the last trip, I swear. Well, actually, I can't swear because sometimes we just don't get to it. But I would love to get a self-hosted meetup replacement. Um, so if you had any problems, go sign up. There's still spots available. Also, if you have any suggestions for a meetup.com replacement, we're all ears. We did get some emails. People went over to selfhosted.show slash contact. Dr. Pepper Shaker says he has some great Z-Wave light switches he wants to tell us about. I wanted to give a shout out to the Zoos, that's with a Z at the end, Zoo with a Z, Z-Wave light switches. I was chatting with the folks on Discord, some Shelly was recommended, uh, and I was really just kind of worried about having 40 plus Wi-Fi devices because he wants a lot of these things. And I agree. You know what? He's got an ISP mandatory provided router AP that he has to use. I bet that thing doesn't handle a whole bunch of Wi-Fi devices very well. So he wired up his whole house with these Zuzi Z-Wave light switches. The Z-Wave network is working great. Um, He says he got them on sale for Labor Day for $24 each. (laughs) Nice. What a score. What a score. All right. That's definitely something to check out, he says. Thank you. And uh, he loves the show. Well, thanks, Dr. Pepper Shaker. We love that tip. Yeah, they're they're on at $28 right now. So, I mean, even outside of the sale, they're, they're not particularly expensive. Uh, compared to, say, a Shelly or something like that, which is typically in that, you know, for the Shelly 2.5, it's typically in that $25 range anyway. Uh, but these look really, really interesting, and they get uh, fantastic reviews. And a friend of mine actually moved house last weekend and 
one of the jobs that we went round to help him with was pulling out all of his old Shelleys out of the walls. And ah, oh, putting putting Shelleys in is not difficult, but it is also really difficult trying to reverse engineer which wire goes where and what's a traveller and blah 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 blah. Trying to reverse engineer the Shelleys when you take them out in someone else's house is also just as much of a pain in the ass as well. So. I think smart switches with the smarts built into them versus a Shelly is something I really think I need to investigate strongly moving forward. That makes a lot of sense. It seems you're right. I had not given a lot of thought about removing them because honestly, if I was going to sell a house, I'd just leave them in there and say it's part of the package. But no, dude, no one else cares about your smart home stuff. And if you've got, you know, 15, 20 of these things, that's, you know, four or $500. Why would I leave that for someone else? They're never going to use it. They're never going to set it up. It doesn't add any value to them. It just adds complexity. It's probably a negative for most people, unfortunately. When was the last time you moved into a house and, and took the light switches apart just to see what was behind them? Like, never. Oh, you like, always find some surprise in my experience. Yeah, well, that, that's true. You guys true. are just adding to that. That's true. Yeah. But building it into the switch does seem a lot simpler from an installation, a removal, troubleshooting if it dies. That's a great point. All right. Another check in the box for Z-Wave. We keep, now that I've committed to switching to Zigbee, we keep finding all these awesome Z-Wave devices. <laughs> I'm going to have both. One thing I should note, though, about these Zoos switches is that they, some of these switches nowadays don't require a neutral. Uh, so in older houses, they didn't always include a neutral wire. These ones do require a neutral. So please make sure you go and check before you spend any money. Sue writes in, and we got a lot of opinions about hosting your own email server because we brought that up. We read that article where uh, the author was very frustrated, said that it's basically just only for big tech now. Sue says, um, you know, maybe it was a bit of a country-based issue. He's in Barcelona. I have been self-hosting email and web servers since 2011 across three states in the U.S., and I've only ever had one undelivered email, and that was actually a misconfiguration on the far side. If you get a business connection, yes, it costs more. It's about double. I have uh, $250 for gigabit symmetric. Oh, oh man. Today we have been fighting bandwidth oh, issues. Yeah. We've been struggling for a few kilobits a second. That sounds glorious. Um, if you get at least one static IP, the same day customer service, and then there's generally no bandwidth caps. Not to mention, no one is going to uh, yeet everything into the sun from a business block IP space. That's true. They're not just going to write off a whole business block of IPs. I realize that there are some for whom this is impossible, you know, awful, uh, you, uh, or the crypto bro, musky starling types, but <laughs> I love the crypto. Bro. Yeah. We call it Elon link. Sue. That's what we call it. That's what we, it's Elon link. Um, but you know what? I kind of get the, I kind of get your point here. It's like, if you set it up, right. If you have the right kind of connection, if you don't get your IP in trouble, you get a good ISP, you can still host your own email. I get that. Also, Sue mentions that uh, they're a big user of Unraid. 186 terabytes hey, been running for 12 years. Yeah, that's solid. I mean, the Unraid stuff, Unraid's been around a long time. And, uh, you know, I think I've been interested in Linux for sort of seven or eight years at this point. And it was it was pretty old when I got involved in, in the Unraid community. So... Good on you, Sue. Sue also gives you a shout out, Alex, for lots of assistance oh. over the years. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very now, much. Now, on the flip side, we got a boost from, I'm going to say, A. Hannigan, A. Hannigan, and uh, they write, I actually agree 
with that blog post on the self-hosted email. I have done it since 2003, but found out it's increasingly harder to get my mail delivered, especially sending to Gmail. I ended up switching to FastMail last year. Here's another benefit of, of using a, a real email provider, and I use, I use real email provider to be slightly provocative, but only slightly. Bitwarden this week actually added alias support for FastMail. Yeah, that's so sweet. So for those that don't know what that means, you know when you sign up to a website and you put your real email address in? Uh, an alias through Bitwarden, that user generation stuff, that username generation stuff they added fairly recently, you can now also generate a username with an automatic email forwarding alias going via your Fastmail account. They also support simple login, Anon, Addy, and Firefox Relay email services. So essentially, you can mask your real email address from these services automatically as part of the Bitwarden generation and it interfaces with the fastmail api to actually add that alias into your email kind of universe within fastmail which i just thought is amazing i hear so many good things about fastmail too so many good things from the audience a hanaga hanaga sent five thousand sats uh froze also sent in five thousand sats just wanted to mention podverse is great but i wish podverse had sats streaming it's a more fair way to give value for value. I wanted to give Podverse a plug here on the show because I think the self-hosted audience might be really interested in it. It is a slick cross-platform web, Android, and iOS podcast player, and it syncs between all of them. I love that because it means I can listen to something and then finish it at my desk using the web player. And it also means that when I have my flings with Android, I have all my podcasts on there. The other thing I really like about Podverse and why I wanted to mention it on here is because it's GPL and you can embed it on your website. We've done it on Jupiter Broadcasting and uh, I've talked to the lead dev, Mitch, several times. In fact, he's messaging me right now as we're recording um, and they're working on all kinds of stuff, including sat streaming. So you can just send the sats as you listen and they and will receive them. It also supports a bunch of the other podcasting and features like live streaming, uh, chapters, transcripts, host information, um, and a bunch of other things. They've also been really great collaborators on our new website as well. Yeah. Um, we solved a lot of issues on both ends with adding their player embedded on our website. And it was really neat because we had, you know, found a few bugs in their player and they we're happy to fix them pretty quickly. And, and it's been great to see those two communities come together. Yeah, that's one of the really neat things that Mitch told me is now that some of their best contributors to Podverse are Jupiter Broadcasting listeners. That's that's so cool. Yeah, it is really neat. So check out Podverse if you haven't, podverse.fm. Also shout out to uh, Prozac, who sent us a row of ducks, uh, just thanking us for the pragmatic cloud discussion in episode 79. And a young dookie who just got a house and is looking to build a full home assistant setup going all in. It's such an exciting time. So congratulations, young Dookie. Keep us posted on that. And then Shim, uh, what do you think there, Brent? Schmidsfeld. Schmidsfeld sent two sats just to see if it was possible to send two sats across the internet. <laughs> and, and it, it was. was. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And then we got 10,000 sats from Silver Snake. No message. Just sent it into the show. And I just want to give a special hello to Maine Hippo who sent their very first Boost this week into the show. Amazing. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about Boosts is the fact that we're kind of rekindling the bizarreness of the IRC, Nick, and all these names. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's a struggle for me. 
to read some of these, but uh, that's my favorite part. When I get it right, it's a win. And when I don't get it right, they can boost in again to tell me I got it wrong. It's also a win. <laughs> yeah. So go check out a new podcast app. Go to newpodcastapps.com and grab one that works for you or uh, grab Breeze if you don't want to switch or Boost CLI or, uh, you know, try out Podverse. I think it's pretty great. A little bit of uh, self, uh, I don't know, promotion isn't the right word, but you know what I mean. I'm looking to sell my old Jules Xeon motherboard. It's a Gigabyte GA7 PESH 2. It's the Dual Xeon uh, LGA 2011 board. There's a pair of E5 2690 V2 CPUs in there. I've also got 128 gigabytes of DDR3 ECC memory in that system. I just don't use it anymore, and I, f- I figure it should go to a good home. Uh, there's a couple of 10 gig NICs on the board, uh, which have been a little flaky recently. So I've been using an Intel NIC card to go in there. Uh, so just be aware of that if you're interested in the board. Let me know via Discord or Twitter if you, if you would like it, and uh, we'll come to some arrangement about how to get it to you. Maybe it'd be a good start for somebody to build a home lab box. 128 gigs of RAM and those CPUs, you could run some VMs. That would do the job. I paid $250 for those CPUs four years ago, and they're worth about 20 bucks now, but they still they still crunch, man. They still crunch. I'm impressed by the old Xeons. I have to say, I mean, I have that old Super Micro box. It's like seven, eight years old. And uh, I threw PhotoPrism on there the other day. And yeah, it lit up every single core, but sure enough, it did the face detection and it did the object recognition at a pretty reasonable pace on an old box. So, you know... You never know. And those CPUs are slower than what you're talking about. So you never know. You could get quite a bit out of that stuff. 10 cores and 20 threads per CPU is quite the thing to observe in HTOP, let me tell you. (laughs) Yes, it is. You know what? I'd say it's a thing of beauty, Alex. That's what it is. Beautiful. Uh, Just a quick thank you to Brent for joining us today. Thank you very much. Where can people go and find you, good sir? Ooh, I think Twitter's a good one. At Brent Gerva. If you can spell it, you win a prize. Wow. Don't forget that other show that we make called Linux Unplugged as well. Yeah, I mean, he forgot to mention that part, but Alex got it for you, Brent. Oh, thanks, Alex. Yeah, I did actually uh, get a new computer, and that episode is going to come out uh, this week. So uh, we talk all about it. That's a big day for you. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah, uh, you were there last time that I got a new computer, and you and I Frankenstein the whole thing, the X250. Yeah, and so- what was it that? That X250, X250, right? X250, yeah. We, we put a new screen in it and a bunch of like hard drive and memory upgrades. And you know what I did? Chris and I spent basically three days running a bunch of benchmarks on both the X250 and the new Dev1 that Chris and Wes bought me, those sweethearts. And, and so, we can now say also the brand new Thalio that was just released today as we're recording. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why it took three days. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> we, we were doing some major shootouts. It was pretty great. Those guys over at System76, they do some cool stuff. Speaking of which, actually, I got word today that one of our old friends in the network, Cheese Bacon, is going to be at All Things Open in Raleigh at the beginning of November. I will try and be there as well. Certainly, uh, we'll do a micro meetup in the Raleigh area. We'll we'll post some details on the meetup page uh, in the Element Room as well uh, to get the details on that one as well. But if you come into All Things Open, it'll be great to see you. Maybe we'll go out for... Uh, an evening of debauchery and uh, fun. I, I don't know what we'll do. Any but... trivia, Alex? <laughs> maybe some trivia. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, go get in that Matrix room and do the uh, meetup spaces. We have more and more all the time. Details are at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash 
Matrix. And of course, we always love your feedback. You can send that in at selfhosted.show slash contact. That's where you get in touch with us. I'm on Twitter at Ironic Badger. I'm over there at Chris LAS and the podcast. Well, that's at Self Hosted Show, obviously. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 80. Well, I wanted to ask your advice on mixers, if I may. So I, I recently purchased a new piece of guitar equipment called the Axe FX3. And this thing is a it's an amp modeling thing. So essentially they've put every amplifier they could think of, every famous sounding guitar amplifier, they've modeled it in software and they've thrown it into a box. Yeah. And this thing is a it's a 3U piece of rack mounted equipment. And so what I'm kind of picturing is a mixer to go with this thing and route my PC audio and the audio from the drums behind me into the amplifier that I talked about in the show. God, you know what would be cool? Only because so you, you have this this rack mount fractal system that that has modeled all of the different gear. Funny enough, I'm talking to you right now on an Apollo Twin Universal Audio Mixer, and they do the same exact thing for like all the famous compressors and gates. And so it has these like ridiculous skeuomorphic UIs of the old gear. Like Brent, if you look, if you look right here, there's even scratches in the paint on (laughs) the UI and like in the screw holes, like it's, you can tell like it's, (laughs) um, so it's a little expensive, but, uh, the Apollo stuff is really good. I mean, obviously there's all kinds of great mixers, but the great thing about the Apollo is that it's PCI, it's Thunderbolt, so there's no latency, there's no delay, and then it has really nice UI to just tweak all of those settings. You do have to buy some of those plugins to get, because, I mean, they really engineer these things. Like, they go back to, the, like, the original traces, to the original specs, and they really model these things accurately, but as a result, they they charge for them. Sometimes B&H, which is what I did, has a sale where you get like a whole pack of all of the classic plugins and stuff. So which one are you talking about here? Is this the Apollo Twin? Yeah, I have the Apollo Twin X, but they have a whole range depending on how many you need, how many inputs and outputs you need, and how much real-time processing you need. I'm kind of battling with a few different options because I've got the drums behind me, and they are currently going through a mixer uh, which has a maximum of, I think, 16 inputs. Uh, So you need a lot of inputs? Well, then Apollo's probably not for that, if you need a lot of inputs. Well, I I might need a lot of inputs. And so if I I can finish explaining, the the drums, I could just send them as a stereo pair, uh, just as a single stereo pair, and just take up one input or maybe two at most, not the 15 or so that are over there, uh, and just have them completely separate and then do the computer via USB or Thunderbolt uh, and the other devices, I wouldn't need more than, let's say, six or eight inputs if I did it that way. Still quite a bit, though. I mean, this Apollo Twin says 10 in and six out. That seems like quite a lot. Certainly for the price, it seems pretty good. I mean, I start looking at more like a classic, a more of a classic mixer, really, when you're talking about that many, though. Yeah. I don't know. Because I'm just doing two. What's your Behringer that you've got in the studio? Yeah, that that is nice, and they've they've updated that the Behringer X thirty two. Oh, that is the X thirty two, is it? Because they do a rack mount version of. Yes, that. they do. Yes, they do. That's. I was just going to suggest that, and then um, you know, you have all the plugs and stuff, but it's a little easier to wire manage. You do need a you need you need their little app, which isn't bad. Well, the I X32 want to edit app because my my dream is to be sat on the couch on the other side of the room playing oh, okay. guitar and mixing all the different you know basically do like an in ear monitor mix. Yeah. With me on the drums, right? Right, exactly. And then, <laughs> because when you were here, Brent, we we played a little bit, and you really struggled to hear what I was playing. And 
it would just be better if we had an actual like live band situation where you could make your own in-ear mix and uh, that's what i want i just don't want to spend the three or four grand on a, a real mixer to do it i wonder if you could get a behringer x32 used because they're very popular mixers in like live performances now and so uh i've seen them used but i haven't looked recently like pre-pandemic but yeah there's 1700 new which is yeah ugh, yeah that's a lot it's a good mixer though it's good you know but it's 10 year old technology is the other thing at this point right the x32 yeah, i mean they've they, i think the rack units are a little more more a little more uh current but yeah so the one i've been looking at and it's <laughs> It's $3,500. And I'm sure Drew editing this is listening to this going, you should yeah, buy he's, this. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's screaming <laughs> the answer right now. Yeah, he totally uh, knows. But I've been looking at the Allen & Heath SQ5, which is a 48-channel digital USB mixer. 48 uh, channels? But it's $3,500, $4,000. It's, it's supposed to be the Rolls-Royce. It's what all the churches use for like their live situations and <laughs> well, if it that. works if it's good enough for god alex <laughs> <laughs> but i think you're going too crazy what like about I, like the x8 sorry just one quick what about the xr18 which is the x32 but just slightly smaller and slightly cheaper i did not know that existed oh yeah that looks pretty nice actually yeah and it's also rack mountable i think that the main thing comes as to whether i want to get the drums directly into this mixer because i'd need to buy a snake and run the inputs that way uh between the essentially between the control room and the and the, the live room is, is essentially what i'm trying to do here but yeah no, that that air x x air xr18 tablet controlled like it's it's literally got no screen it's just all i guess all the control is remote is it yeah and the, you know what the ipad app isn't bad they haven't i mean maybe they've updated i haven't used it for probably about a year but the iPad app works just fine, and the desktop app works on every OS, Mac, Windows, Linux, just fine. Hmm. We've given me another another thing to research tonight. Thank you, sir. I'm sure you'll get the real answer after Drew edits this. That's true. <laughs> well, I did talk to him via chat, but I think I got him in the middle of his work day today. So. I see the uh, XR18 for uh, 700 bucks, dollars $899, $599. So this is, a, you know, wow. it's under a grand. One with ears and everything ready to go is 1200 So you get a range, but yeah, you can find it on eBay. 